Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Ian Drake with the New Books Network, and we are joined today by Steve Luxenberg. He is the author of Separate, the story of Plessy versus Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation. He's an associate editor at the Washington Post. Steve, welcome to New Books Network. I'm glad to have you join us today. Thanks for having me, Ian. So this is a history of, as the subtitle to your book explains it's a history of both Plessy versus Ferguson and um, segregation implied by the title separate. Um, why did you choose this as a topic you wanted to write about? Well, for about 40 years, I've been a journalist and I've often written or edited stories in which race played a central component. And I yet, you know, around 2011 or 12, when I started thinking about this book, I I felt like I really didn't understand what I believed to be our national conversation. Uh, we're either talking about race or we're avoiding talking about race. And I, I wanted to understand that, and I felt that we needed to go back in history and look at the roots of racial separation, which uh, begin long before the, the, the infamous Plessy case of 1896. That's true. You start long before it. Plessy uh, itself as a case is alluded to throughout, but it's really, it occupies the last, I guess, third or fourth of the book. Um, and this is, uh, to my mind, a rather unusual form of legal history uh, and social history. It's, it's a kind of a, what I would describe as an ensemble biography. Is that a fair description? Yes, I think so. Uh, although, you know, I, I, I thought about writing biography once as in my you know, in, in trying to develop myself as an author. And I felt like it was a confining genre because you're kind of bound by the, the beginning and end of, of a single person's life. And I, I'm a storyteller. I'm not a legal historian or a constitutional scholar. Uh, and I wanted to be able to bring the people on stage who I felt were important to this infamous case and understand how they had evolved, how they had the arc of their life that they had gone from you know, their, their young lives to uh, being on that stage in 1896 when they make this decision. But I also want okay. to, I also want to understand ahead. the resistors who uh, bring the case and the people whose shoulders they stand on. And so it's kind of a parallel narrative. You, you know, you really can't have a legal case unless you have somebody bringing the case. And so it's, it's a parallel story. And so of course, the parties are important, but um, and the lawyers and the judges or justices in this instance uh, at the Supreme Court level. Um, so before we start talking about the, the individual biographies, even though these the stories of these individuals are, are important to what they culminate in, in terms of Plessy as the case, do you think the case itself would have turned out differently if there had been different people involved? Well, I think it would not have turned out differently if different justices were involved, because for a long time, uh, until very late in the 20th century, 
you know, the justices on the Supreme Court, the nine white men who are in, in those seats, uh, they all come from essentially the same background and class. Uh, they're, they're men of privilege and of some wealth, they're not necessarily wealthy, but they see the world in very much the same way. And, and they pay attention to the precedents of the cases that come before them. And in 1883 and in 1890, the Supreme Court, the predecessor courts, there were some of the same justices, uh, they had already ruled in a very narrow way on the 14th Amendment and, it, and had often rejected it as a way of looking at, at civil rights and, and, uh, and separation. So I don't think a court would have made a different decision. I think the case would have been argued differently had different uh, lawyers been involved because the, the, the lead lawyer was a very uh, a radical and eccentric guy who had a particular worldview. And the, uh, the committee of New Orleanians who bring the case have a particular cause that they're pursuing. So if the case had come from somewhere else with a different set of lawyers, it probably would have been argued differently. Right. Okay, so let's start with the people that you focus on. Um, we'll take uh, first and foremost uh, John Harlan. Um, why don't you tell us about him and his background? Well, Harlan is the only dissenter in this seven-to-one decision. That is, the only one who, who argues in his dissent vociferously against the idea that separate can be equal, a phrase that does not appear in the majority decision but is a good way of describing the situation. And he's a Kentuckian. Uh, he comes from a slaveholding family in 1859. As a young man, age 25, he runs for Congress on a pro-slavery platform. And yet over the arc of his life, he evolves into somebody who rejects those pro-slavery views and not only rejects them, but says they were wrong. And I think his conversion is a genuine one. I think his dissent is uh, just as important and as ringing as it has been portrayed. Uh, and, and yet he's, he's the outsider. He's not somebody who's going to carry the day. Uh, as reliable as he was for the people bringing the case, he's not going to carry anybody along with him. And of course, Harlan's unusual. He comes from uh, Kentucky, border state, and you, you go through the antebellum period of his youth and his involvement in the Civil War. Uh, how do you think that that shapes him in preparing him for the role that he eventually takes once he's a justice? Well, the book has five parts and in 21 chapters, and chapters... Uh, uh, five through nine are, are called war, five through eight are called war. And the reason I, I spent that much time on the war is I think it shapes almost everybody in the story, even those people who do not serve in that war. For, for Harlan, as you pointed out, being from a, a border state like Kentucky meant that there was division sort of sewn into the fabric of your life. Uh, when he raises a Union regiment, now remember, this is a pro-slavery candidate for Congress who's raising a Union regiment, he just doesn't think that, uh, he can't imagine a world without a Union of both the North and the South, and he wants to preserve that Union, but he makes very clear in an open letter to the Louisville paper in 1861 that he will not fight a war to end slavery. Uh, he believes strongly that it's up to the states to decide the fate of slavery at the local level as well as a lot of other issues. And he holds on to that view all the way through the war and into the Reconstruction period when the three Reconstruction Amendments are ratified that abolish slavery, 
establish equal protection under the laws, the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment, which establishes voting rights for black men. He holds to that view that this is a Kentuckian's uh, decision to make uh, about those decisions. And he doesn't embrace until later on the more expansive view that we have today that the federal government belongs in these issues, that it's a national problem. But he does embrace that view, and that's how he comes to be the dissenter in all of the civil rights cases between 1883 and 1896. Do you see him as, and we're going to talk about the other two prominent people um, in just a moment, but do you see Harlan as someone who is uh, really reflective of the time, or does he run contrary to the social sentiment of the times? Well, that's a very complicated question, isn't it? Because uh, there is no single view of the time, but the majority view among whites would be one that Harling would share some of and reject other parts of. He would certainly uh, reject the idea that color should determine whether you deserve equal rights, and that's what he argues in his dissents in, in 1883, 1890, 1896. But he would accept the view that the white race is superior to the black race, something he actually says in his dissent. Uh, but he says that shouldn't matter in terms of how equal rights are viewed, that the, color, that the Constitution is colorblind, a phrase that he borrows from the, the brief from the New Orleanians and, and Albion Turget, the lawyer for, for them. Uh, he runs counter, I think, in the sense that he belongs more in the in the camp of the radical Republicans. They're radical because you know Republicans. It's important to note they're the anti-slavery party founded in 1854, and throughout the 1870s and 80s, they're still that party. And and the most radical of those uh, those elected politicians are passing civil rights legislation like the Civil Rights Act of 1875 that are trying to ensure that there's a way to implement. These, these amendments that are supposed to guarantee equal rights, and he belongs in that camp. But that camp is not the majority. It's a substantial minority in the party, but it, by 18, 1880, it's no longer the majority. And so, in addition to uh, Harlan, you feature two other individuals, and we'll talk about Henry Brown. What's he like? What's his background? Henry Brown is the justice who ends up writing the majority decision for the seven justices who are willing to endorse separation. He's a New Englander. If you looked at his background, you would think that he would end up on, on the dissenting side, as you would expect Harlan would end up in the majority. Uh, he is, uh, grows up in an abolitionist, anti-slavery neck of the woods. There's plenty of people around him, including some who mentor him, who not only are anti-slavery in, in word, but in deed. They, they act. They write letters. That in some cases, they participate in rescues of enslaved people who have run away and are in the North, and there are people trying to bring them back to the South. So he's around all of those people, but he ends up, uh, not, not, not a lot of it seems to rub off on him. He, he goes to uh, Michigan as a young man. Uh, in 1859, he becomes a lawyer and a judge. And he gets on the court in 1890, and he seems to, uh, he loves going to Europe. Uh, he writes that Europe in his diary, that Europe is the higher civilization. And uh, I write in the book that he knows more about London, Rome, and Paris than he does about Atlanta, Savannah, or New Orleans, uh, places that he never visited. 
<laughs> so the museums, they're always fun, aren't they? And so he, this it is interesting to me in reading about these uh, individuals. I, I found that uh, over the course of the book and in terms of just their biographies, not ultimately where they stand on race issues per se and how they how the uh, Plessy case turns out, but rather just there as people as revealed through the biographies that created here. Uh, I liked Harlan a lot and I just didn't care for Henry Brown that much. Did you find the same or do you have a different opinion of Brown? Well, you know, I, I once heard Doris Kearns Goodwin uh, give a talk about her writing in the 19th century when she was immersed in her biographies of, of Lincoln uh, and his team of rivals, as well as Theodore Roosevelt. And she said, I get up every morning and I love being with my characters. And I want to be able to say that I love being with my characters, <laughs> but I, I loved uh, Harlan more than I, uh, I didn't love uh, Brown as much as I liked the others. But I found him fascinating because he's been treated uh, by those few historians who have, who have written about him. He's been treated quite rudely. One of them actually uh, uses language that suggests that he's kind of not very smart. Uh, and that he might be a tool of Chief Justice Melville Fuller, who was the, the justice during the Plessy period. Um, I don't think that's true. There's evidence in correspondence with Fuller that Brown was, a, was an independent thinker, and he disagrees with Fuller on a number of things. There's also evidence that he's quite smart. Um, but he, I think, is somebody who I, I think I would describe him as being a, more self-centered than outward-looking, a little shallow in his way of looking at the world. That is that he can't really see beyond what's in front of him. And while he's a, you know, vociferously, uh, he's an avid reader, but he doesn't seem to take in what he reads and understand that, that you know, the famous phrase about you don't know what you don't know. And he doesn't seem to really understand that. Well, the last person in this triumvirate that you've uh, written about is Albion Tourget, and he, I must say, is deserving of a biography in his own right. He has a really unusual life and really intriguing one. So can you explain his background? Well, there has been a couple of biographies of Tourget, one of them quite political in, in the, it's called Carpetbagger's Crusade, Carpetbagger being Tourget because he went from the North to the South after the Civil War to live in North Carolina and cement the revolution that he felt that the Civil War had started. Uh, he, he, using Lincoln's phrase, said, I don't want the Union to be as it was, in other words, preserved. I want it to be better than it was. And better for him meant those equal rights that were enshrined in the 14th Amendment. Um, another biography came out in 2006 by Mark Elliott. It also is a very fine book, and I use both of those books liberally to educate myself. But I read a lot of correspondence that Turgé has left behind in an archive in western New York, especially with his wife, uh, the woman who becomes his wife, Emma, uh, and their courtship. And I, I felt like I was really able to get into inside of his head somewhat in a way that was harder with Brown, who leaves behind some pocket diaries with some scribbles, but not a lot of letters. Uh, Turgé is, is truly a radical. Um, he sees the world in a very different way from Harlan. He comes from a, a, a background that we would describe as middle class, although that phrase doesn't mean much in, in the 1850s and 60s. He comes from Ohio. And his time in North Carolina, which was 15 years, uh, was when he grew into his political uh, pants, I would say, 
and he becomes uh, the most famous white advocate for civil rights in the country through a series of best-selling novels that he writes in the 1880s that are compared to Uncle Tom's Cabin, amazingly enough, and yet we don't know them today. Uh, and he also becomes a syndicated newspaper columnist for the Chicago Interocean, a newspaper that's long gone. But that he, he's so popular in the South among black readers that this newspaper in Chicago run by you know, people who are white have this subscription base among black readers in the South that they are quite uh, proud of. And so um, what ultimately is Tourget's role in Plessy? Well, it's, it's sort of accidental or serendipitous that Tourget ends up as the lead lawyer for these group of New Orleanians. It's that newspaper column that draws their attention in New Orleans, this, this mixed-race group of often French-speaking Creoles, that means native-born, uh, in Louisiana, who have, who have been free for a very long time, and their descendants have been free. There's, there's, this is not a, a liberated slave group. Uh, and they, by 1890, are, they're, they're anxious to fight against this Louisiana Separate Car Act. And one of them writes to Tourget and asks his advice, because he, as I said, is the most famous, probably, white advocate for civil rights in the country. And one one letter leads to another, and eventually uh, Louis Martinet, who's the head of the committee for the New Orleanians, uh, seeking uh, Turgé's uh, counsel, gets an invitation from Turgé to participate in the, in the case. Uh, Martinet jumps at this chance because, you know, after all, who would not want Albion Turgé on your side? And the committee decides that, as, as Martinet writes to Turgé, you shall have complete control over the legal strategy of this case. And so this lawyer from upstate New York now, that's where he's living, who does not have a Supreme Court practice, has only argued a couple of times before the Supreme Court, suddenly ends up as the lead lawyer in this case. So it's quite serendipitous. And this, of course, is an important case because it's going before the U.S. Supreme Court, which um, at the time that this comes before the court in the 1890s, is there any reason for optimism on the part of Tourget or any of the others uh, from New Orleans who are trying to challenge this law? I would say there's a sliver of optimism. There's not a lot because the, you know, the, the Supreme Court has already indicated in the two previous cases I mentioned what its direction is. On They, they have a very narrow view of the 14th Amendment, which is going to be the key to Tourget's argument. Uh, and yet, you know, Louis Martinet had gone to a convention called by Frederick Douglass, which took place in, in 1883 in Louisville, uh, which was called the National Convention of Colored Men. And, and Douglass, as he often did, made this ringing speech in, in favor of action, of always fighting, of never waiting, don't stand on the sidelines. And, and Martinet, you know, 10 years later, thinks that he's kind of doing what he doesn't write about it this way, but he's doing what Douglas uh, has sort of uh, advocated. And he asks for Douglas's imprimatur, or the committee does. And uh, Douglas does not give him the approval that he wants. And, and Martinet writes to Turgot about how angry he is about this. Uh, so that's, that's the kind of people we're, we're talking about, people who believe that they cannot stand on the sidelines and they must fight, even if the odds are against them. And the odds were very much against them. And Turgot knew this. He wrote to Martinet in 1893 saying, uh, you know, it doesn't look good. The, 
the new nominee to the court just makes our chances worse. Uh, maybe we shouldn't bring this case. Maybe we should delay. But they, they press ahead. It takes another couple of years between 1893 and 1896, but they press ahead even though they fear they're going to lose. And it's important to understand that this, in fact, is a classic uh, test case. In other words, it's a contrived case where the challengers to the law are uh, have uh, a violation of the law planned and they seek to have it enforced. And so their aim is, in fact, um, to challenge this law uh, even before uh, uh, Homer Plessy is cited, right? Well, they, they, they form a committee, you're exactly right, that the letterhead, I don't think a PR agency would approve of this mouthful, but the letterhead said the committee to challenge the constitutionality of the separate car law. That doesn't roll off your tongue easily, but fortunately there's no television or radio in those days, so they didn't have to say it out loud. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the idea of an arranged case was not as unusual as it sounds. There were other cases like that. Uh, but they, you know, Homer Plessy was chosen uh, because of his color. He was nearly white, and they wanted to say that he could. It was in, impossible to enforce this law, or as I write in the book, uh, he was fair-skinned enough to cause confusion for a conductor walking down the aisle of a railroad car and trying to decide whether you were white or black. Uh, and uh, you know, Plessy uh, is the second person they they asked to get arrested. Uh, not the first, uh, but it's a June 1892 day when he buys a ticket for Covington, Louisiana. Uh, but his destination, as you as you suggest, was not really Covington. It was jail. He he wanted to get to jail because that would start the case. And even then, they didn't know that they could get to the Supreme Court. That road, that four-year road to the Supreme Court, was was uh, populated by all kinds of possible uh, obstacles and detours. And they just needed to arrange the case in the best way they knew how in hopes that they would get it to the Supreme Court because they knew they weren't going to win at the lower court level. Uh, that, uh, that was likely to be uh, a, not, a, not a place that they could, they could uh, have a victory. Right. And so uh, this is, of course, uh, in a time prior to the NAACP's uh, origins. So there is no um, nationwide. Uh, or at least nationally known civil rights group that is arguing for civil rights on behalf of African Americans. And so this is really one of a multitude of different types of litigation efforts, right? Yeah, and interestingly enough, you know, Turgé was trying to start a national organization, the National Citizens' Rights Association, he called it. Uh, and he had a lot of subscribers. They, all you had to do for a membership was to pay a dollar and, and you were a member. And he was hoping that this would be the voice for national civil rights. It never turned out to be that. And I don't think he saw it as a legal defense fund the way that NAACP later created, created that. Um, but yeah, you're right. The, the NAACP as an organization is you know, 20 years off in the future. Uh, not quite 20, uh, 15 years off. Uh, and... There, there, but yeah, but but even though there was no national organization, this was unusual. This new New Orleans committee, because it was uh, comprised of people who were somewhat wealthier, somewhat more educated than a liberated slave population that you would have seen in, in let's say, 
Savannah or Richmond or Atlanta, uh, and they had been uh, able to uh, come up with a, a legal team that, that comprised three lawyers, one in New Orleans, one in Washington, one in New York. Now, Tuget was offering to do this for free, so that was a big bonus in terms of fundraising. Uh, they, they do give an accounting of themselves after the case is over in which they go through how much money they spent. They feel like they owe that to the public. So it's a very transparent effort, uh, even though it's a losing one. Right. So let's talk about the case itself in terms of um, how the court uh, dealt with the issue of what ultimately becomes the famous infamous phrase of separate but equal. What was the actual legal challenge and how does the court in the form of we can talk about Brown and Harlan and their views um, or at least how they're articulated for, as members of the court? How does it come out? Well, it, you know, lawyers want to win. And so they want to come up with arguments that they think have a, a chance. And when Turgeon looked at this group of lawyers, I'm sorry, looked at this group of justices, we need to uh, tell our listeners that this is a very different kind of Supreme Court than what we're used to today. Uh, we frequently expect a 5-4-6-3 decision from our Supreme Court today. In the 1890s, a divided court of 5-4 was very, very rare. There were some terms where there were no 5-4 decisions, uh, maybe one or two 6-3 decisions. 90% of the cases were decided unanimously, which the court liked because it felt like that gives, gives them credibility. But also, this was not an ideological court in the same way that we talk about it today. Uh, presidents didn't put justices in place to cement a conservative or liberal court. Instead, they were trying to curry favor often with the senators. Uh, and so you have the, the, the Supreme Court in those days were, were, were all of a, of a kind of same cloth. They were all men of, of some wealth and privilege. And uh, they saw the world in very much the same way. And, and Turgeon assessed them and said, well, property rights is really what they care about. So I'm going to give them a property rights argument. But he also based a lot of his uh, strategy around the 14th Amendment. And the way he justified that was to say, I know you've looked at the 14th Amendment before, uh, nine justices, but I want you to look at them, the, the, the amendment in a different way. And I have different arguments because the facts in this case are not the same as the facts in the two cases that you've already decided. One of the uh, questions that uh, arises for legal historians very frequently is how important courts are as governing institutions that have effects or are affected by other institutions in society. And so one of the common questions asked is, you know, did a particular case, a landmark case, which Plessy certainly is, is it merely at the tail end of a social change or a uh, social phenomenon and it's merely ratifying what is already in existence? Or is it changing the way society works uh, prospectively after the decision? How would you evaluate the Plessy decision in light of that question? Well, that's an excellent description, I think, and a very, uh, 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 it's, a, it's a very good way of talking about Plessy because it's really both. Uh, the ruling, the seven to one ruling, both ratifies something that's been 
in the, in the uh, nature of the country for 60 years, since the dawn of the railroad age, there's been racial separation, began in the north on a railroad train in Massachusetts in 1838. Uh, but it's also st the start of a new era. And yet, and yet, it isn't recognized at the time. It is a landmark case. I would agree with that. Uh, but it's not recognized as a landmark case because it was an expected ruling from a court that had already laid out its view of, of the 14th Amendment. Uh, it doesn't decide the case on the 14th Amendment. It decides it on the basis of Louisiana and its legislature having the, the police powers to enact legislation that would preserve law and order and rejects the notion that the 14th Amendment should supersede that, that, uh, that, that authority. Uh, so why do we see it as a landmark case today when at the time, especially in the white press, it wasn't seen as being very important? And the answer is because the Supreme Court keeps going back to it and, and using it as a precedent in subsequent cases in the 1910s, the 1920s, the 1930s. And by that time, in the 1930s, it's very much recognized as being an important case, so important that the Supreme Court's going to overturn it in 1954 and renounce the previous court's ruling. Uh, so I think it's both. Uh, and that's what makes it a very unusual story. And so uh, in terms of Harlan's role, Harlan is famous, of course, for being the dissenting voice in Plessy. Um, so let's, uh, let's explain, uh, I, I want you to address, you know, his, his personal odyssey. Um, you've alluded to it earlier, but now that we're talking about the case proper, um, what's his personal odyssey prior to this case in terms of the legal, uh, treatment, uh, not just his personal social views, but in terms of the law regarding, uh, equal protection of the laws under the 14th amendment and how he sees that as playing out in this case. And then I uh, also want to talk about the reaction uh, to the case and his role in it after it's published. Well, Harlan's uh, personal odyssey is a remarkable one. He's the, the individual, I would say, in the story who changes the most. And uh, I read a lot of history, and I, I, I fear that some of the historians I read are, are following what I would call the seed version of history or the seed theory of history, in which we know the outcome. In this case, we know that Harlan's going to dissent. And so we go back in time and we look in his young life for the seeds of that, that man who emerges in 1896. Well, I don't think that that theory is very useful. I prefer what I call the evolutionary theory of history, which is that people can change. They don't always. And they're, they're, they're affected by the, the uh, the lives that they live and the years that go by and the actions that they take and the actions that others take. In Harlan's case, um, we have to accept that he was, in fact, pro-slavery. We have to accept that in 1859 he ran for Congress that way at the age of 25, that he comes from a slaveholding family, that he has to deal with the family's uh, inherited, uh, the people who are enslaved under the family's uh, household uh, in 1863 when his father dies. Uh, he holds on to those slaves through the end of the Civil War because Kentucky was not covered by the Emancipation Proclamation, which only covered those states in rebellion. And as we've talked about, Kentucky was a border state and did not join the Confederacy. And yet, in 1868, he joins the Republican Party, which is in some ways not a very smart thing to do politically, but we have to see it as genuine. Uh, the, the Democrats were the party of power in Kentucky. 
they hold the governorship and will for, for a number of terms. So if, if Harlan just wanted to get ahead, he would have become a Democrat, but he can't, he can't abide the Democrats. He works with them and decides that they're not his cup of tea, that, they're, that the party is filled with ex-Confederates. And so he joins the Republican Party and meets other Republicans who are more radical than he is, including a guy named Benjamin Bristow, who's going to run for president later on in a losing campaign. Uh, and he becomes much more uh, of a radical. And in, in, in 1877, 1877, when he is nominated to the Supreme Court, he writes a 19-page letter defending himself as a good Republican to the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee, saying that my conversion and my renouncing of my slavery views is a genuine one. Uh, and that's the man who is going to dissent in Plessy in 1896. Uh, it, it is, a, I think, a remarkable evolution and a real one. And, of course, he's got a credibility in making this claim uh, after the war because he actually, even though he's from a border state, he participates for the Union in the war. And he raises a Union regiment, uh, which I think, you know, he, he's quite torn about uh, whether to participate in the war. But, but his wife, he and his wife have a, a, a very poignant conversation in which uh, she says, if you didn't have a family, what would you do? And he said, well, I would, I would raise a regiment to fight to preserve the Union. And she said, well, you must go and do your duty. And for, for men in the 19th century, this idea of honor and duty is a real one. Uh, so is their feeling about ambition. Uh, my, the first part of my book, the chapters that begin the book are titled Ambition, because I wanted to drive home the point that Today, we see ambition as being something a, a bit unseemly or too aggressive. I mean, if you meet someone and they say, I'm ambitious, uh, you say, well, I don't really want to spend much time with you because you're, you're going to be difficult to deal with. But in the 19th century, the people who were not ambitious were the, were the outliers. Uh, so it, it, Brown, in his diaries, would, would write, do I have what it takes to make my mark in the world? Uh, why don't I have more ambition? Why aren't I as ambitious as some of my Yale classmates? Uh, so this idea of ambition is a governing one, and it definitely governs what Harlan is about because he wants to make his mark in the world. But it's not just personal ambition. In other words, your point is taken regarding the, the different dispositions we have today regarding ambition versus the 19th century. But also, he, he is the classic example, it seems to me, of somebody who, on the one hand, exists in a slave-based society, um, but at the same time, he is very much pro-union. For him, the union is the key to everything about prosperity in America, right? Well, he has been a student of the Constitution, and even though it's a flawed document with slavery embedded in it, in that clause that uh, gives political apportionment to the South in greater numbers through the three-fifths of a person clause that applies to any enslaved uh, man or woman in the South, he understands that the, the strength of the Union comes from, you know, the, the combined authority of all of the states. And he can't imagine a world in which the South is a separate uh, entity. And, and he thinks that it, it would be the wrong side of history. And, of course, he's on the right side of history, not only more often than other people, but, but most of the time. He he's, has the kind of foresight I write at the end of the book that the other justices don't seem to have. He understands that this ruling is going to cause uh, a, a in, uh, it's going to embed segregation into the society in such a way that it's going to uh, be something that he, he finds shameful. He actually uses that word. 
and says that it will be as shameful a decision as Dred Scott, which is that ruling before the Civil War, that said that blacks, free or not, could not be citizens. Uh, so he's quite uh, far, far-reaching in his views, and he sees this union falling apart, and he does not want to see that. I mean, I think it's really hard for us to imagine that you would volunteer, there's no draft at this point, you would volunteer to fight a war, to take up arms against your neighbors, especially in a border state like Kentucky. It's hard to, to overestimate the, the, the gravity of that decision, and I think you're right about it. Sure. I mean, he certainly, uh, the social milieu in Kentucky is much more endemic or uh, what you would find in the Confederacy than it is in uh, the North, uh, in the Union states, um, especially because of the presence of slavery. Yeah, I mean, I, there are people in the South, even if they are anti-slavery, who still believe in this period that the North, it's easy for the North to say that they, we can get rid of slavery because they don't understand the economic dislocation that's going to occur Etc. And they they sort of are are not sort of they are they are resentful of the North because they think that the North is too glib about all of these issues. Um, and of course, there's difference of opinions in the North as well. But in Kentucky, you had every every opinion on the spectrum because of its border state nature. Uh, it's important to understand that most families in the South, and particularly in Kentucky, did not own slaves. Was not the majority. Um, there were families that did not run farms that had slaves. That would be Harlan's family. You know, the, the, they were modest growers of of, uh, of food. They didn't rely on on their crops to survive. They weren't farmers. They were lawyers and professionals. So it's a, it's a very different uh, situation to argue about slavery in Kentucky than it is, let's say, in Michigan or in in, in Maine. You know, I'll tell you, uh, in thinking of the war and uh, Harlan's participation in it, that's one of the things that um, I found admirable about Harlan. He seems to be a principled man, even though his views will change over time in regard to slavery. Uh, whereas Brown, I, I must say, my opinion was lessened of him immediately once he engages in this uh, desperate search for a substitute in war. Yeah, that was, this was something that it's hard to, to understand because we don't, pay people to serve for us today, but it was quite common during the Civil War. Most people paid substitutes once service in the North became mandatory. Uh, there were some drafts. They were uh, as a way to supplement the volunteer force, not to overtake it. And Brown, like others, uh, paid for a substitute. He paid $850 in 1864. He had just gotten married. And he wasn't keen on serving in the war, and he kind of rationalized itself, all this to himself by saying, well, I'm a government official. He was, a US, he was an assistant U.S. attorney, and he was a, a deputy U.S. marshal, and he said, these two jobs are serving the Union. Uh, I don't need to go off and fight. Now, I have no evidence to know anything about his, his view of, of fighting, whether he was uh, afraid of fighting or anything like that. And, and I say it's important to note, note that he wasn't alone in, in hiring a substitute. But it, it did. Certainly. It certainly. Did. I, if I recall correctly, I think even Grover Cleveland hired one, didn't he? Well, I'm not certain about that, so I, I won't say that if you say, uh, I wouldn't challenge you. Uh, but but the, the thing that's important to think about is what he missed 
what Brown missed by not serving in the war. He missed the opportunity to learn more about the, his own country, about the issues. Um, he, he learns about the South from books. Uh, as I say, he, he goes to Europe uh, a dozen times uh, over the next 20 years, and he knows more about the, the European cities than he knows about the South. Uh, would, it, would it have changed him to serve in the war? Well, you know, we can talk about alternative universes of history, uh, and I don't find that very fruitful. We only can deal with the history that we have. But it certainly was a missed opportunity in Brown's case. We know that it changed Harlan. We know that it changed Turge. Turge becomes more radicalized. Harlan renounces his slavery views. Um, so I think that we can safely say that Brown would have been changed as well in some way. And so, um, as you noted earlier, this case is not seen at the time as a landmark, but of course it, it does become one uh, for the court and in popular society. In other words, uh, when I teach my students about uh, constitutional law, um, they've heard of Plessy, even if they're not familiar with exactly what it stands for, they've heard of it in conjunction with Brown versus Board. Um, I realize that, of course, uh, you're you're essentially concerned with uh, the lead up to the case and uh, only to a degree with its aftermath. But um, how would you how would you characterize Plessy's role uh, that it's taken on uh, in American law after it was decided? In other words, it's not a landmark at the time, but it becomes something later. Um, what do you think of it in terms of its effect on American society? Well, I think it's fascinating that it isn't regarded as a landmark uh, right away. Because it teaches us that the Supreme Court is never about one case, or rarely about one case. I mean, we can talk about Brown versus Board of Education. I think it's safe to say that most Americans know that case, and it stands alone in terms of its singular comment on society that separate is inherently unequal. Plessy was not regarded that way at the time, and as we talked about, it took took a number of years for the court to use it as a precedent before it became recognized as the landmark that it should have been and, and is. Uh, but it, I, I, I'm just fascinated to tell you this story, which is in 1921, Carter Woodson, Dr. Carter Woodson, who was the founding editor of the Journal of Negro History, founded in 1915, the first such publication in the country, he wrote a piece in 1921, 53-page essay on... 40 years of what he called Supreme Court decisions on Negro citizenship. And you would think that if in 1921 Plessy was a landmark, that he would spend a considerable amount of time discussing its, it, it, the facts and its importance. Two pages of his 53-page essay, 53 essay on Plessy, 12 pages on the civil rights cases of 1883, which is the first of the civil rights cases of note uh, that... Well, among the first that the court uh, uh, hands out. Uh, so I think that it's safe to say that in 1921, Plessy was not seen the way it was seen 20 years later. And uh, the Supreme Court in 1954 in Brown cements our view of Plessy by choosing it as the case to renounce. It doesn't choose the civil rights cases of 1883. It doesn't choose the, the Mississippi separate car law of 1890. It instead chooses Plessy. And so I, the, the Supreme Court, I think, is responsible not only for Plessy, but for our view that Plessy was a landmark. Right. I think I agree with you there because um, uh, you, say, you get the sense also that in many ways the, 
the reason it's not a landmark at the time it's decided is because in many ways it's simply ratifying a practice that's pre-existing and uh, it, arguably it gets a green light and official imprimatur from the highest court in the land to continue with state sanctioned segregation. But ultimately it's coming along late in the game and ratifying something that's already pre-existing on the ground in the South, but uh, not well, just the South, of course. It, it, um, yeah, one ahead. of the things that uh, as a historian and as a writer that I, I find a little discomforting is, you know, I have a Google alert in which uh, I get articles about Plessy. That's the word I put into the Google alert. And it sends me these articles. Uh, and I see the frequent reference to the Supreme Court creating the doctrine of separate but equal in Plessy and making it the law of the land. Now, in a literary sense, we can perhaps accept that. But in a, in a literal sense, I, I think that it does not do that. It cannot make something the law of the land. It can only make it as you put it before, it opened the door, it, green, it gave a green light to other states to do what Louisiana had done. And many states take that green light and they, and they go forward. But we, we, we don't want to give the impression, I think, that the Supreme Court can summarily make something the law of the land. That's Congress's role to make something a law for all of the states. And it's not the Supreme Court's role. And so it makes me uncomfortable because here's why I think it matters. In some ways, that kind of writing suggests that we should lay the blame for separate but equal and for segregation entirely at the feet of the Supreme Court. And I think that lets the rest of us off the hook. It lets the South off the hook. It lets the North off the hook. It, it, it really is the shame of all of, the, of us because separation had been practiced for so many years in so many places throughout the country. And I think it would be better if we, if we embrace the fact that it's the country's responsibility, not just the Supreme Court's. The book is Separate, the story of Plessy versus Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation. We've been joined today by its author, Steve Luxenberg. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on New Books Network. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, the book is, is just out. It's in, it was published in February. And if people want to know how to get it, they, they can know that it should be at every bookstore and online. Uh, and it, it, I also have a website, steveluxenberg.com. They can go and find out more about how I did my research and other writing that I do. All right, great. Well, thank you. Thanks again. Thanks, Ian.